We're going to study of Paul's letter to the Colossians, and we turn today to Colossians chapter 2, verses uh, 16 and 17. Once again, I'll take a few verses back to get the context. Uh, Paul is... Uh, uh, laid out the great glories of Jesus Christ and all that we have in him in chapter 1. And now he's applying that to certain temptations and false teachings in the church in chapter 2. Let's start back at verse 11, the start of this section. And we'll be considering verses 16 and 17 today. From, second, excuse me, from Colossians 2, verse 11. In him, that is in Jesus, you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by the putting off of the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And you, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. He has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed principalities and powers. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. In the passage for today. So let no one judge you in food or drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance is of Christ. Amen. Let's pray once more together. Our Father in heaven, we pray that once more we might know the riches that you have given to each one of us in Jesus and that we might, as it's written, possess our possessions, that we might truly know and be glad and rejoice in the fullness, the freeness, and the completeness of the salvation that you've given to us in Jesus. We should not be tempted or led astray by anything anyone could promise us for all that we need and all that we are is found in him. And it's in him that we pray. Amen. Paul, in this chapter, puts before us two different visions or uh, understandings of Christianity. One of them, pr promoted by various false teachers, was, it seems, impressive. It was rigorous. It was proud. But it promised people the fullness of wisdom and completeness, uh, meaningful traditions, deep spiritual experience. It's a counterfeit. It is, in fact, legalism. It breeds judgmentalism. It leads to division. It's a poison. It's not the real thing. The other vision for the Christian life is the one Paul has been preaching all along. It might seem rather plain and ordinary by comparison. It's not focused on ourselves, but on Christ. It's not looking for the next thing the next big thing at all, because we've already received what we need in Jesus. Uh, those who follow the second path, Paul says, they grow. They get rooted and built up in Christ. They are not proud or judgmental. They learn the humility of Christ, having been 
in fact, delivered by him and made alive when they were dead and doomed. There's going to be, therefore, a deepening unity in Jesus, not division. Counterfeit Christianity is the theme of chapter 2. And it came in various flavors in the first century, just like it does in our day. Back then, Paul had to deal with the Greek corruption in the first part of the chapter, and he's now dealing with the Jewish corruption as these Gentiles were being pressured to be circumcised, as we saw previously, and here today, to follow the food and festivals of Israel. Now, that may not be much of a challenge for you, but I mean, probably the biggest challenge in the first century in the church in those days was, was trying to bring Jew and Gentile together in the same church. I mean, you can hardly imagine a more uncomfortable collision of culture and background and ethnicity. I mean, they fought for years. The differences were profound. The Jews were marked out by God himself as a holy people. And, and now did those markers mean nothing? Were they gone? They were absolutely committed to certain practices that distinguished them from all others as God's holy people. And they looked down on the others as the uncircumcision, the unclean. They were proud, judgmental, legalistic oftentimes. And now many of these Jews had believed in the long-awaited Messiah, Jesus. And now suddenly they found themselves worshiping next to people that were very, very different from themselves. And the church quickly went from an entirely Jewish membership to a largely Gentile membership in the space of just a couple years in every city. And things were tense. It, it, this, this trouble leaves its mark on pretty much every page of the uh, Acts and Epistles. Both here, for example, and in Romans 14, we read something about what life was like in the church. Let me give you a few phrases from there first. Let not him who eats despise him who does not eat. And let him who does not eat judge him who eats. Sounds like a fun church. Why do you show contempt for your brother? You are not walking in love. That wasn't the problem just in Rome. It was everywhere. Here in, in faraway Colossae, verse 16. Let no one judge you in food or drink or regarding a festival or new moon or Sabbaths. The answer, once again, is in Jesus, verse 17. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance is of Christ. Well, today we're going to look at this passage and consider the meaning of these things, how they're fulfilled in Jesus, and then uh, take up the larger question for today, which I've already received from some of you, the larger question that people have often asked from this passage. So then, what about the Lord's Day? Well, first to the passage. Paul describes uh, the, uh, uh, in a triplet here, three words, uh, three phrases, a triplet that's used several times in the Bible to summarize the whole calendar of Jewish observances. Uh, it occurs several times in the law and elsewhere. Festivals, new moons, and Sabbaths. Some translations mysteriously translate that last word as a singular, a Sabbath, or a Sabbath day, but it's, it's clearly plural. 
uh, and the fact is there were many Sabbaths in Israel. I mean, they not only had the weekly day of rest, of course, they had Sabbath years every seventh year. And if you say, the law reads, well, what shall we eat since we won't sow or gather in our produce? I mean, you're going to give us off one year and seven. What are we going to eat? Well, God says, then I will command my blessing on the sixth year, and it'll bring forth enough for three years. So this was the calendar in Israel. Every seventh year, take off for the year. In the seventh year, anybody who had also sold themselves into slavery got to go free. Anybody who got so poor they had to sell their family house and land got it back for free. Nobody had to work in the fields. Nobody had to tend the vines. And then every seven Sabbath years, they celebrated the Jubilee. And that year on the Day of Atonement, the trumpets blew throughout the land and the nation proclaimed liberty to the inhabitants. A great year of extra blessing, debts forgiven, slaves set free. These were Israel's Sabbaths, which were pretty great. Every year they would have also three festivals or feasts, uh, Passover, Pentecost, or the Feast of Weeks, and Tabernacles, or the Feast of Booths. Um, and also, of course, at every new moon, uh, every month, they had special sacrifices at the start of a new month. Uh, we, we just enjoyed the New Year celebration. That was pretty fun. They celebrated the fresh start every new month in Israel. And it was a rich calendar. I, I can see why some of the Gentiles then, as even now today, are tempted to get on Israel's festal calendar. It was pretty great. But of course, the greatest thing about it by far is that it pointed to Jesus. He is the Passover lamb who has been slain for our sins. His blood delivers us from God's wrath. He is the bread of life, as we just read, who came down from heaven and gives us eternal life. He is the atonement for our sins, who cleanses us from all unrighteousness. He is the first fruits of the resurrection, the firstborn of the dead who guarantees our future resurrection. He is the tabernacle of God, who tabernacles, dwells among us by his spirit even today. So um, uh, he is the fulfillment of all of these things. Uh, during those new moon celebrations, the priests offered burnt offerings and sin offerings on behalf of uh, the people so that uh, it, was, it was like a, a like, like New Year. The past is gone. The, the future stretches ahead. It, it, it's a new start. And these sacrifices foreshadowed the sacrifice that Christ would make so that we too would know uh, hope, uh, renewal, um, Jesus, the one who makes all things new. He gives a new life, a new heart, a new spirit, a new covenant, a new age. Just as the new moon signified hope and renewal, so it does uh, in Christ for us. Those weekly Sabbaths pointed to a future rest and peace that God's people would enjoy in Christ's eternal kingdom. We read in the letter to the Hebrews how there remains, therefore, a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For he who's entered God's rest has ceased from his works, as God did from his. So as Lord of the Sabbath, Christ is the fulfillment. He gives us the true, the everlasting rest. 
The point is that the whole calendar had one great unifying theme. It all pointed to Jesus. And this was important because it was not to be continued now that Jesus had come. It all pointed forward to Jesus. And now that he has come, now that the fulfillment has come, all the rest was going to go away. All those ceremonies and those food laws were complete. And this is what the book of Hebrews presses on the Jews and Galatians on the Gentiles. As great as those things were, as great as those signs along the road were, they're past because Jesus, the fulfillment of all, is now here. And therefore, the message to the Colossians is, do not let anyone judge you with regard to any of these things. These were all shadows of the one who has now come, Jesus, whom you have received. Those, those, those things were wonderful in the past, supremely because they all pointed forward to what you get to enjoy in Jesus. That's the meaning of the passage. And it's a warning against legalism that we could take in another way, direction today. But I would like to stop and to answer an important question which we need to consider, which some of you have already asked me from this passage. Is, well, is there no more day therefore for us? Well, I would like to take this up uh, with you. And we should not, of course, jump to the conclusion that there is no day for Christians just because there is now nothing remaining of the Jewish calendar. If we read this passage to say that there is therefore no day for anybody, we've overread it. John, for example, writes in Revelation chapter 1, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. We can't conclude that there is no more day. What we need to ask now is, what does the Bible teach? Okay. So let me introduce you to the, to the question this way. Uh, yesterday I was uh, sitting in Panera Bread, finishing my sermons, uh, and uh, I work out a lot so I can get to meet people and uh, talk to them, engage them in conversation. I was sitting next to a family. Turned out they were visiting from Alexandria, Virginia. I said, well, what are you doing here in town? The mother said uh, that their daughter was a student at Virginia Tech, and she was in some sort of competition uh, yesterday and today. Well, that won't sound strange to you who, if you're under 25, but that's a big change, a big change that just happened a few years ago. The NCAA used to think it would be good to give students a day off. They do not think that anymore. There is no rest now. Uh, you have to compete on Sunday if you want to keep your scholarship, right? So you got class Monday through Friday, you got competition Saturday and Sunday, and you got class Monday through Friday. That's the way it goes. Um, to explain the, the problem with that, if you're also 25, you might say, well, isn't that the way it's supposed to be? No. We have to start a long, long, long time before. And so I'm going to go back even further. We're going to go back before there was a ceremonial law. We're going to go back long before there was a nation called Israel. We're going to go long before there was a man called Abraham. We're going to go before man even fell into sin, before sin entered the world. We're going to have to start back at creation. We're going to start from there, and I'm going to give you seven reasons why we still need a day of rest and blessing 
and sanctification today. First, in the beginning, God worked in this world six days. You know that? And then we read on the seventh day, God ended the work that he had done, and he rested the seventh day from all the work which he had done. And God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it. You know why God worked for six days and then rested the seventh? Uh, was it because he was tired? No. God could have actually done all the work in a moment or in a day. Do you know why he did it this way? It was later explained. He did it for us so that we might do the same. Uh, a day, every seven, rooted, not in Israel, not in some ceremonial law, not in Abraham, much, much earlier, in the activity of God himself, which is, second, a creation ordinance. When God put man then in the garden, he made man, he put him in the garden, and he said, I'm going to tell you a couple things about life in paradise, okay? I'm going to give you these four, what are often called creation ordinances. Uh, marriage, children, six days of labor, one day of rest, a day that he blessed to mankind, not blessed to some nation that would long appear uh, many, many years after this. Uh, when Jesus teaches on a day, he reflects back to how it was at the beginning. And he said, you know, the Sabbath was made for man. It, he made it a blessing for mankind, like marriage, like children, like the labor of six days. Um, there was nothing Jewish about the origin or the purpose of that day. We were created to work six days and then rest for seven. Now, I know that uh, some of us men, we, we get something new, get a, get a new tool or toy uh, uh, for a present or something. We like to open it up and do we read the instructions? No, no, we know, we know what we're doing, right? So uh, we don't have to read those instructions. We, we know how it's supposed to work and then things don't go very well, right? Okay. Um, well, well, if things are not going well for you, we, we should go back and read some instructions about how the maker made you to function. Um, before sin ever entered the world, in paradise, God gave marriage. Now, who would ever mess with marriage? I don't know. God gave children. Who would try to get out of children? I don't know. Who, God gave six days of labor. Who would ever throw that off? I don't know. And God gave a day of, of rest. And, and this, this was as it was from the beginning, a creation ordinance. But of course, things did not remain in that happy state. And so God, uh, much, much later, uh, carved out for himself a people in this world and to, and to teach them his ways. He gave them at last a law, a law that made it very plain to those Jews that they were to rest and, yes, give those servants of yours rest, even your animals. You cannot force your ox to work without rest. We need the rest. He gave, he, God gave a law that would secure much-needed rest to man and beast, uh, a need that ye, you still have today. Let me quote uh, Benjamin Harrison, our 23rd president. Um, Experience and observation convince me that all who work with hand or brain require the rest, which a general observance of the Sabbath only can secure. The philanthropist and the Christian may approach this subject from different directions, 
but whether we regard man as animal or immortal, we should unite in securing for him the rest that body and spirit both demand for his best condition and highest good. Those who don't find it in the book cannot, find it, cannot fail to find it in the man. Sorry, that uh, uh, a weekly day of rest, he's saying, is moral, a creation ordinance, and uh, giving much need to man and beast. Fourth, it then became part of the Ten Commandments. When God brought the, his people out of Egypt, you'll remember, even before he gave them the law, even before they got to Sinai, he instructed them about the day of rest. It, it, it was not, um, it wasn't the Ten Commandments, but before it was given, he did remind them of that, and so the Fourth Commandment then begins, remember the Sabbath day. The Fourth Commandment uh, gives six days of labor and one day of rest. Six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work, and the seventh is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. He himself uh, did that rest and blessed it to us. Now, the idea that he, of course, only gave nine enduring commandments is a bit hard to swallow. I mean, you don't hear people going around saying, well, now that we're Christians, it's okay for us to kill and steal and take the Lord's name in vain because Christ has come. Uh, oh, the fourth commandment is the same kind as the other nine. It's something that's made for man. It's perpetual and moral. Uh, fifth, what the day of rest signifies has not yet been fulfilled. What the day of rest signifies has not yet been fulfilled. It's pointing to the rest that Christ gives. Um, Israel received a kind of rest when they entered Canaan, but not the final rest. That was also just a picture of the rest to come. The, the point of Hebrews uh, chapter 4, since that promise of entering God's rest still remains, let's fear lest any of you come short of it. There remains, therefore, a rest for the people of God. Okay, yes, Christ has come, but what was signified in that day has not yet been fulfilled to us. So when Jesus at last came, um, he also makes this uh, point about what a true day of rest involves. He affirms a day of blessing, a day of mercy, a day for man's good in which no work of necessity is forbidden and in which doing good was commended. I mean, if there were Jewish burdens on that day, the burdens Jesus swept away, the blessings he emphasized. What the day of rest signifies has not yet been fulfilled, the rest that Jesus himself gives. And Jesus goes on to say much more about this day than Moses ever did. In fact, Jesus gives about twice the instruction that Moses gave. Jesus always kept it himself while he was alive, attending the synagogue, doing works of ministry, doing works of mercy on that day. Um, but starting on Resurrection Sunday, when he rose from the grave, he never kept a Saturday Sabbath again. But he did start meeting with his disciples, not on Saturday, but on Sunday, when we read, they worshiped him. John 20, the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. 
and then nothing for another week until the following Sunday when we read his disciples were again inside and Thomas with them and Jesus came, the doors being shut in, in, in the, and stood in their midst and said, peace to you. And we read about him meeting with his disciples then on Sunday. We read about the, the Sunday when Christ's people were gathered together in the upper room and Jesus then poured out his Holy Spirit and baptized his people on Pentecost, a Sunday. And seventh and finally, there is still a day throughout the New Testament that is also called the Lord's Day. Sunday became then the day where the disciples met for worship, Acts chapter 20, the first day of the week when the disciples come together to break bread. And Paul, ready to depart the next day, spoke to them and continued his message until midnight. Well, don't have to copy everything of the early church, okay. Uh, Paul wanted the church at Corinth to show mercy to the needy. And so he ordered a collection for the saints of, in, in Jerusalem. And he said, now concerning the collection, as I've given orders to the churches of Galatia, so you must do also. On the first day of the week, let each of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper, that there be no collections when I come. Well, why bother to specify the day for the church's offering? Couldn't it be done any day? Well, it wasn't just the, the practice at Corinth. He's given orders to all the churches of Galatia, so you must do also. Collecting for the poor, when they met on Sunday, was the universal practice of the Christian church since the days of the apostles. John, in the last book of the New Testament, says that he was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. And without getting too technical about the Greek grammar, it's not just a simple possessive there. So if you want to look that up, there's a construction of, that's only used for two things in the Bible the Lord's Supper, and the Lord's Day. Uh, both of which, uh, of course, are new for us. The Lord's Supper, which looks back to his death. The Lord's Day, which looks back to his resurrection. Now, I suppose it shouldn't be thought strange that since the ceremonial law is gone, there still are some things for us Christians, right? I mean, Passover that looked forward to Jesus is gone. But on that Passover feast, that last Passover, Jesus gave us a new meal to do in remembrance of him, to look back. We'll be celebrating in a moment, the Lord's Supper. Circumcision is gone. That's clear. But we are given another sign that looks back to the same things that circumcision looks forward to in Jesus cleansing from sin, justification by faith, regeneration, and many other things as I said in the previous sermon. Circumcision is gone, verse 11, but baptism is ours, verse 12. The Sabbath is gone. It's not so strange to think that the Lord's day is that which therefore remains. Now, I realize that some have said, wait, since Christ has come, um, we no longer require a day of rest, really. Has, is this the freedom we have in Christ now, freedom from our need from rest. As this woman told me about her daughter who was in uh, two days of competition before she starts right back to school, I thought, is this, the, is this the freedom that Christ has supplied? Do we no longer need a day of rest? Do we no longer need a day for holy assembly? Do we no longer need to spend a day blessing and being blessed? 
Do we no longer need to be like our Father now that Jesus has come with six days of labor, one day rest and mercy and so forth? Will someone say, thank God that Christ has delivered us from all those things, blessing, rest, refreshment, holiness. At last, we can force our workers or our students to go without rest now that Jesus is here, now that we can work ourselves nonstop. I, I, I don't think there was anything Jewish about the creation of the day from the very beginning, and I don't think that now that Jesus has come, we are free from those needs. John Owen put it this way, the Jewish Sabbath is dead and lies in a Jewish grave. That does not mean that the Christians should never observe any days. Let me hasten to rehearse quickly these seven reasons I've given you about why the church has historically said we need to have a day as Christians. It's rooted in the activity of God. It's a creation ordinance. It gives much needed rest to man and beast. It's part of the Ten Commandments. What the day of rest signifies has not yet been fulfilled. Jesus teaches on that day much more than, Jesus, than Moses. And finally, there is still a day throughout the New Testament that is called the Lord's Day. Now, I think that some confusion came in the church when uh, Origen, in the third century, church father, um, uh, kind of coined a new phrase. He said, you know, the Lord's Day is the Christian Sabbath, and uh, was true so far as it goes, but that terminology became confusing, especially as it came into the English, uh, you know, uh, language and culture. And, uh, and so, rather than the Lord's Day, some people uh, still prefer, prefer the term Christian Sabbath, which can be confusing. Uh, like if we, if we said, we're going to have uh, another Christian circumcision today. The circumcision of Christ. I mean, that, that's biblical. I, 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 it, it, I understand what it means. But that would be confusing if you read passages that said that circumcision was gone. Or if we said, we're about to celebrate the Christian Passover. Which I, I suppose is uh, true in a sense, and that all that Passover signified is true in this meal, and that what that looked forward to, this one looks back to. But the early church for centuries kept their terminology biblical and therefore clear. And it wasn't an issue. There wasn't a single group in the ancient world that did not worship on Sunday, that did not keep a day of rest on Sunday. The Ebionites, this one fringe uh, Jewish group that uh, stayed separate, that, that observed all the feasts and all the ceremonies and, sac and sacrificial laws, they also took off on Saturday, but everyone took off on Sunday. Um, so Ignatius, who was a student of the Apostle John, martyred around AD 107 or 108, he writes, Be not led astray by strange doctrines or old fables that are profitless. For if we're now living according to Judaism, we confess that we have not received grace. If then they who walked in ancient customs have come to a, came to a new hope, no longer living for the Sabbath, but for the Lord's day, on which he sprang up through him and his death. 
Clement of Alexandria, 168 or so, writes, The enlightened Christian, when he's fully observed that which is the Lord's day, according to the gospel, keeps that day, uh, the commandment which he casts away low worldly thought, and lays hold of that which is spiritual and enlightened, glorifying in the resurrection of the Lord. But he reports, the old seventh day has become nothing more than a working day. Council of Laodicea proclaims in Canon 29, uh, fourth century here, Christians shall not Judaize and be idle on Saturday, but shall work on that day. But the Lord's day they shall especially honor, and as being Christians shall, if possible, do no work on that day. And of course, one of Constantine's reforms as a Christian ruler was to give the workers in his empire a day off, if could be managed. March 7th, 321 A.D., Constantine published the law on the venerable day of the sun, Sunday, let the magistrates and the people residing in the cities rest and let all the workshops be closed. And his laws went on to forbid circus, theater, and horse racing on Sunday. Well, I won't multiply examples. The point is that in the early church, the Lord's Day uh, had a very important place. The language was clear. The language was biblical, was not an issue. But, but it's not as clear to us today. It's an issue for us today. And with this, I'll, I'll close. Um, I was interested recently, a few years ago, following a controversy in Germany in which there was a move um, to have some of the Sunday laws struck down. Um, you might, might, might have read about this. It, it was only in Berlin and it was, it was only for the four Sundays before Christmas, for the shopping season, uh, the department stores uh, uh, asked the, uh, uh, the, the mayor and the city managers, can we please open our stores on Sunday, just for the, for the holiday season? And uh, they said, um, okay, that, that sounds, like, sounds like a plan, but it did go up to the Supreme Court of Germany, and they overturned it. They said, uh, uh, no, um, the Christian day of rest is in our German constitution. And um, look, whether you, whether you find it in the book or in the man, people need a day off. I wish other countries had been so wise as to include it in their constitution in better times. But the fact is, in my lifetime, nearly all the historic laws and cultural practices in historically Christian lands from 321 AD to the present have been overturned. It's been a big change here in Virginia. Even in the last few years, you drive past the fields, they used to be empty, now they're full on a Sunday. Uh, this, this rhythm of work and rest, work and rest, not only rest of body, rest of soul. Uh, what do we read about earlier? Delight, holiness, blessing, to heal, to do good. All the things you most need are appointed for you, but such a spirit does not fit with the spirit of our age and the 24-7 culture and the way our economy is structured. Our, our government at least still requires employers to give their employees one day a week off for rest and religious observance. I don't know how long that will continue. They don't have that in the non-Christian countries. China, you, you don't get off one day a week. And we, we may be there. Again, the students have already lost their right. Unless we are clear on the Bible's teaching and about, the, about uh, our need, 
we are liable to be swept along with the current of culture going downstream. Now, I think the biggest problem is that many Christians tend to hold the Pharisees' view of the Sabbath, not Jesus' view. In other words, they think the day is a great burden and a misery. They've piled up so much legalistic stuff with people judging them that it, it does sound like a burden. I mean, people have asked me many times, are you a strict Sabbatarian? I'm supposed to answer. It's like, have I stopped beating my wife yet? Uh, a strict, uh, am I a strict Sabbatarian? Like, if I say yes, I've already, I've already lost the argument. It, it makes the day sound like a burden. G- God says that this day, what, what words are, did he use? Blessing, delight, to be called honorable. Nothing not to like. A foretaste of heaven, as it were, the days of heaven upon the earth. If you don't like what you're doing on Sunday, well, you're going to be doing it a lot longer in heaven, right? Okay? When you say, I, I don't want to have days like, like that here on earth, what do you think are the, day, are the days to come like? When we pervert the day ourselves as Christians, when we do not make it a blessing for ourselves and others, when we have no joy or delight in the day, and we make sure that others have no joy or delight, we are opposing the whole creation ordinance. And I think that what we have done as a church has probably done more to damage the day historically than the people of the world who don't like it anyway. Um, the Epistle of Barnabas, written about 100 AD, says, For this reason we keep the eighth day, uh, Sunday, with joy, the day in which Jesus rose from the dead. We keep it therefore with joy. Is that what you are doing? Jesus says, a day for doing good, for mercy, for, to save life, to heal. Uh, above all, a holy day to spend with the Lord. Man's first day as a created being was a day off to spend with the Lord. It, it, will you also be in the Spirit on the Lord's day? That is, that is the question that I have for you. Here's the decree of Roman Emperor Leo I, A.D. 469. He writes, We ordain, according to the true meaning of the Holy Spirit and the apostles thereby directed, that on the sacred day in which our own integrity was restored, that we do rest and cease from labor, so that neither husbandmen nor others on that day put their hand to forbidden work. And if the Jews did so much to reverence their Sabbaths, which were but a shadow of ours, are not we which inhabit the light and the truth of grace bound to honor the day that the Lord himself honored and has therein delivered us from dishonor and from death? Are we not bound to keep it singular and inviolable, well contenting ourselves with so generous a grant of the rest and not encroaching on that one day which God has chosen to his own people to honor. Is it not a reckless neglect of religion, he says, to make that very day common and to think we may do with it as we do the rest? What was the ruler of an empire? Well, dear friends, I hope I've given you a good deal to think about. Um, we're to be like our Father in heaven, resting six days after Uh, resting after six days of labor. He was refreshed. He hallowed the day. He blessed it to us and did good to us and told us now go and do likewise. Making it a blessing.
a delight, to call it honorable, to honor him, to have one-seventh of your life be as the days of heaven upon the earth. This is what is held out for us, to honor him. So, dear friends, I ask you once more in conclusion, will you be in the Spirit on the Lord's day? That is what we seek together. Let's pray then. Our Father, we pray that you would give us an understanding of uh, your will for us, and as difficult questions inevitably arise, as uh, works of necessity press in and other responsibilities claim attention, we pray that in our lives we should have the healing, renewing, sanctifying, blessing power that you, from the very first day, uh, for very first week, put into this world. We pray that it would be operative in our lives as well, that the, the time which you give should make our lives worth living. We thank you again for the grace that is ours in Jesus that has uh, delivered us from uh, the uh, burden of sin. And though you've said that there is no rest for the wicked, you have promised that we who are with Christ will rest from our labors. I would pray for any today who have not known the rest of the Lord Jesus. And though I have not spoken to them today, as is my custom, I pray that something that I would have said would have plucked their ears and struck their hearts, that there is a rest, a true rest that is available, that is eternal, that is renewing, healing, satisfying, sanctifying, that is blessed in Jesus to them, that they would come to Jesus today to find that rest which he alone can give. We pray that you would give rest to our souls, for Christ's burden is easy.